Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Well, hello, hello. Welcome back from a long weekend and an even longer previous week. And what we've decided to do is to let you talk or vent or whatever it is that you need to do here on the radio. Uh, And we've been through a lot. And for some of us, it was maybe more than it was for others of us. For me, partly because we do this kind of stealth brand podcast slash show called Pardon Me, Another Damn Impeachment Show. And because my regular show, the show that runs in this slot, was being preempted by the impeachment hearings anyway, I watched a lot of impeachment hearings. (laughs) I watched a lot. And I certainly have things to say about them, but... I'm kind of more interested in what you have to say about them. So let me mention the phone number for you to call in. 888-720-9677. It's 888-720-9677. You may also tweet us at WNPR Colin. You can comment on our Facebook page. I eh, don't do that, though. That's going to take too long to relay. So, uh, But you could do the Twitter thing. That'd be fine. Uh, but uh, most of all, 888-720-9677. So... And by the way, as we get along here, as we get into the show a little bit, I've got some other things that I want to talk about, including the whole question of mental bandwidth. Like, you know, are you finding, I'm finding this, and I have to do this for a living. I'm kind of supposed to be good at it, but I'm kind of finding that my brain has space for, you know, the impeachment and the aftermath of the impeachment and some Biden stuff, stimulus, normalcy. Um, you know, but actually normalcy means in some ways you don't have to pay as much attention because like nobody knows, and that's not true, but you know, you could really rattle off the names of Trump's early cabinet picks pretty easily because they called attention to themselves and he called attention to them. You know, with Biden, I could name most of them, I guess, but I'm even a pretty well-informed person might not know everything about Biden's cabinet. Most people have a pet issue, you know? And I'm not minimizing climate change by saying it's a pet issue, but I mean, everybody has at least one thing that they're worrying about. And then there's the pandemic that everybody's worrying about. And maybe, you know, some cancel culture stuff. But, you know, really, I don't think I've ever felt less well informed (laughs) because there's like all this other stuff that's going on that I'm just not paying attention to. And I'm in the journalism business. All right. But maybe we'll come to that. Um, I'd like to begin by just sort of asking you where you think we are as a country now that we've gotten through the second impeachment of Donald Trump. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of speculation. Uh, First of all, Republicans are leaving the party here in Connecticut. Uh, According to the Secretary of State, uh, 5,000 Connecticut Republicans have left the party since the January 6th insurrection. Um, And that's a lot. it's happening more and more uh, that Republicans are also very interested in talking about a third party. The question in my mind is always, what's the third party? But uh, according to a new Gallup poll, 60 percent of Republicans want a third party. Um, and um, that's that's a high. That's the highest it's ever been from either major party. What's well, the 63 percent, actually. Uh, and. 
Although the Democrats have gone near that at one point, too. To my way of thinking, this third party stuff, the question is who it's sort of like divorce, you know, who gets to keep the House? Who gets to keep the Republican Party? Is it the Trump Republicans or the so-called business Republicans? In other words, the Trump Republicans, we kind of know who they are. The business Republicans are the people who want a lot more order and stability and a lot less crazy talk. Um, so, you know, I feel like they're going to I mean, Trump talks about creating the Patriot Party and stomping off there. I don't think he even has the kind of attention that would be necessary to do that. But um so you could have that or you could have the so-called business Republicans creating their own kind of hyper-responsible party. The problem with all this is whenever it comes up, I wonder if people have thought this through very carefully, particularly given what we just went through in terms of the post-election count. Because, you know, when you get if you have three really functioning competitive parties, uh, it's quite possible that none of them would get to the requisite number of electoral votes to elect a president. And then you have a very chaotic situation. It's thrown into the House, blah, 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 blah. So be careful what you wish for about that. Um, but yeah, a lot of questions. I mean, the Republicans are kind of sticking to their Trump uh, affiliations uh, to a high degree. A surprisingly high number of them in polling still refuse to believe that the January 6th insurrection was what it appeared to be, as opposed to some kind of false flag operation launched by Antifa or, or whatever. I mean, we're, we're not in good shape uh, in terms of even agreeing on the basic elements of reality. It could be argued that that's been the case for a long time, but um, it's especially true now. Okay, so the number, 888-720-9677. You may tweet us at WNPR Colin. Some people are calling in here. Uh, all right, let me just see. Okay, now I don't have a name up there anymore. Um, all right, I'm going to go to this line, which may or may not. I don't know who that is up there anymore. This seems to be Tyler from Windsor. Is this Tyler from Windsor? This is Tyler from Windsor. How are you doing, sir? Excellent. I, I'm fine. How are you? I'm pretty good, thanks. So what's on um, your mind? So, um, basically, I was uh, just a little upset. I think this kind of resembles a lot of people in my age group, at least my peers. We were talking about this the other day. Um, this kind of just opens the door for future uh, politicians, Republican, Democrat, wh whatever party they want to be, to kind of just do whatever they want once they get in power and not really face any consequences as long as the people, who, you know, in Congress know they have a base behind them that might get them reelected. You know, and, and that's just a little ridiculous that they're willing to kind of throw away that basic principle to kind of just get, get their way in the future. Maybe. You know? First of all, can I ask what your age group is? Uh, I'm, I'm 30. I turned 31 this year. Most okay. of my friends are around the same age. I mean, one thing that I would say about that, it's an interesting point, but it, it presumes that the only way we've ever kept anybody in check is through impeachment, which I don't think is true. I mean, you know, it's this is such a weird, weirdly disproportionate scenario. I mean, we've had four impeachments of presidents in the history of the United States, and Trump was two of them. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, obviously, Nixon, Nixon would have been a fifth, but... Um, you know, I mean, there are other ways to uh, keep people in check. There are other ways besides impeachment. I, I totally understand what you're saying, what you and your friends are feeling, that this process, because it is so hopelessly partisan, no matter which way it's going, it's going to be very difficult. I mean, you know, I mean, in the first cycle, Romney was the first senator ever to vote against uh, a president of from his own party in an impeachment trial, and this, and then in the second uh, second one, we've got seven 
doing that. So you could you could argue actually <laughs> that impeachment is getting less partisan as we go along. But I think that's very much due to Donald Trump. I, I don't know. I I, I I hear you, but I also sense that I also feel as though I mean it's not as though. You know, I mean, every president does stuff that contravenes the wishes of the American public. Every president, to a certain degree or another, another, kind of doesn't fulfill the promises he made in a campaign. Even presidents we like and consider virtuous, I would say that's true. So, but but I know what you're saying, which is this is some pretty extreme stuff, and there was no price he paid for it. So, so yeah, I don't know. What are you going to do with that depression? Uh, I don't know, man. <laughs> I really don't know. I gotta get back to work, though. All right, all right, all right. Get right back to work. Uh, I'm going to talk to Gloria, who's somewhere in Massachusetts right now. Once again, the number before we talk to Gloria, the number is eight six. Oh, no, it's not. It's eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven. I think that's eight 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 seven two zero WNPR. But don't hold me to it. I'm not alphanumerically gifted. Uh, all right, so here's Gloria. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. I would love to know if anything could be done with Mitch McConnell. He's in office now, and in the near future, he's still going to be in his office in whatever you know position he's in. Can he be prosecuted for being the biggest hypocrite in history? <laughs> And what about the other 43 uh, Republican senators also who voted to not convict? Right. I, well, if, first of all, you know, if we're trying to reduce the size of our prison population, if we start sending uh, hypocrites to prison, um, we're going to have to build new prisons. Uh, I, you know, he, I don't, I'm not aware that McConnell has done anything actionable. Uh, I mean, we may not like stuff that he does. I've been appalled by him ever since he refused to allow Merrick Garland's nomination to the Supreme Court to get up into the hearing stage. I thought that was wrong. I I thought he was taking advantage advantage of the power he had as opposed to using it wisely and and according to tradition. But, you know, that's not against the law. Um, And I don't think he did anything against the law this time either. I think he gets on people's nerves. But, you know, if that was an offense, I'd be in prison. so, you know, look, this is the way the system works. And and as far as the other 42 uh, votes uh, against conviction, that's, you know, they're they're allowed to do that. I mean, that's why we have the trials. So I, I don't know. I, I hear your frustration, but I don't. The only way that you can, I mean, pretty much, I mean, impeachment being the rarity that it is, pretty much the only way you can get an incumbent senator out of office is to run somebody against him. Or her, and that's really hard too. I mean, that's incredibly hard to unseat an incumbent. More of them leave. I mean, you know, one of the reasons Richard Burr voted the way he did because he's not coming back, but of his own accord. Very hard to get somebody who's a senator out of office. I know. I've watched people try, but anyway, thanks for your call, Gloria. Was there anything else you wanted to say? No, that's enough for now. (laughs) Okay. All right. Thanks. Thanks for calling, and we're going to go to Marissa in Bristol. Hi, Marissa. You're on the air. Oh, hi, Colin. Yes, I'm so glad I was able to get through. No, I just have a question. Um, Republican Kensinger, I was reading this morning that his family has uh, basically uh, 
uh, throw him off the, the list because he voted to convict Trump. So I would like I would like to ask these people. So you are punishing your relative or a friend because you convicted Trump. So are you then for uh, insurrectionist? Are you for the guy that stuck his thumb in the policeman's eye? Are you the one that hit the um, the policeman with the fire extinguisher? Is this what you're for? Is this what this country has become? I came to this country in 1964, and this is not the same country. It's not. I think you're right. I mean, I, it pains me to hear you say that, and it pains me to hear what is obviously the pain in your voice, too, to say that. But I think this country has changed. This country always had problems, and some of those problems stayed more buried uh, than they uh, did than, than they are now. But, I mean, when you say it's not the same country, what do you mean? What, what is, how does that surface in, in, in your consciousness? I mean, it, it, was, it was such a dream. I mean, I didn't come to this country because we were poor or we were, we were persecuted. We, it was just, it was a family thing. They wanted a change and we came here, okay? So uh, it, it was such a dreamy, such a dreamy place. Um, and yes, of course, we had differences. And at that time, in 1964, I didn't know if I was a Democrat or Republican, but I, I used to listen to uh, um, William, uh, what, what's his name, on Firing Line. Uh, William F. Buckley. I, I just loved, yes, William F. Buckley. Uh, I just loved um, hear, listening to him, but I am a Democrat. I am a Democrat because uh, I like, I want to have good schools. I want to have safe water, safe food. Uh, I want the public lands to, to be what they are so people can enjoy it. I want everybody to do well and be safe and have so and have health insurance. Is that does that make me a socialist? Really? According no. to Representative Kinziger's family, that would make you a socialist. <laughs> yes, and these are, these are people these are people that go to church every Sunday and yet stood stood for this man who separated children from their families. I, I have a broken uh, friendship of 30 years because of this, not because of the politics, because it's a moral thing, meaning you go to church on Sunday, and then what? You, you stand for this man? It, it was the hypocrisy, and I, I cannot get them back, and I don't care. I don't care, as, as sad as it is. Well, I, Marissa, I Marissa, we have to believe that things will get— You know, I just want to say one thing about this Kinzinger thing. It's like his cousins or something. I mean, who doesn't have some? Actually, my cousins are fine, but uh, so don't don't take that the wrong way. But I mean, people typically. It doesn't like his mother did this to him or something. <laughs> I mean, we look. We we live in a time where people are not getting along with their families. Sometimes because of Trump. Sometimes because of other kinds of divisions. There are Republican families that are bitterly divided against one another in in exactly this way, and then there are Democrats, Democratic families that can't sit down without a fight. That's sort of essentially between the Bernie and Hillary wings uh, of the party. Uh, people fight about politics. Then they probably fight about politics more in their private lives than they used to. Uh, but anyway, here, let's get going. Uh, we've got some other people calling in here. Let's go to Jim somewhere in Connecticut. Hi, Jim. Hi, Colin. I'm in Cheshire. Um, I guess a couple of thoughts. I, I think that Mitch McConnell is probably one of the most politically astute people in the country. I believe that, as, as a lifelong Republican, that Mitch McConnell put that show on, let that show go on, 
to show, to expose Donald Trump to America in a way that maybe they didn't see it before. And I think that there's going to have to be three parties because as a lifelong Republican, again, I voted for Ronald Reagan in my first voting experience. Um, I could never support Trump faction of the Republican Party. And that's it. That's just my thoughts on the whole situation. All right. Well, listen, first of all, I, I 100% agree with, with you about McConnell. I mean, I, I, I think he and I think he did that not because he wanted to expose the horrors and the evils of Donald Trump, but because he would like to win some midterm elections. And he feels like without people like you, he's not going to be able to win midterm elections. He's not going to be able to win 2022 elections. Uh, and that means he's going to be the minority leader, which he doesn't like either. So, so yeah, I mean, and so I, I think what he was trying to do, I also think he would not like to have three parties. Uh, because he knows basically the party that splits is going to lose a lot of electoral cycles before things even out. I think he would like to avoid something like that, too. I think what he wanted to do was pull the toilet handle really hard and see if he could flush Trump out um, and, and as quickly as possible with as little fanfare as possible. In other words, just get rid of this guy and make him irrelevant. I, I don't think it's going to be that easy, and I, I think he knows that, too. But I think that, you know, yes— he was happy to have that show unfold, he, and then he gave that speech that he gave to make it clear what he really thought of Trump. Now, the question is, can he burn away uh, enough of that and still have a party left that can win elections? And I don't know if we'll know that. But anyway, thanks for your call, Jim. I don't think so. I think the Republican Party that I belong to will become the third party. Well, uh, you know... if. Uh, you might be right. And I certainly know other Republicans who are thinking that way right now. It's just a, you know, it's a hard thing to do. And, and uh, but I, I think the people who believe that they can do it, they believe that they can create a party that will be maybe the way to think about it. Were you here in the state in 2006? Oh, yes. I've been yeah. here my whole life. OK. So, so you know, one of the reasons. So in 2006, you may recall, Joe Lieberman fell out of favor with his own party. Uh, and... He uh, was uh, primaried by Ned Lamont successfully. Lamont won the primary. And then Lieberman started uh, Connecticut for Lieberman or whatever that party. He started a third party, which, by the way, he never joined. <laughs> he actually never enrolled. He never switched his party affiliation. Uh, he didn't join the party that bore his name. But he won that election. And the way that he won that election was by being able to fish out of three ponds. In other words, he, a certain number of Democrats were still going to vote for him, establishment Democrats. Uh, who who just you know didn't see any reason to to give up on him, uh, and uh, he obviously he was going to get a lot of independent votes, and he was also going to get a, a bunch of Republican votes, particularly because the Republicans nominated Alan Schlesinger, who was not a really viable candidate. So here you have Joe Lieberman, who doesn't belong to either major party. In fact, belongs to a party that has almost nobody in it, and he won an election. And and I, I think that is how you have a third party and you you can win elections. If you can fish out of all of the ponds, you've got it. So you, Jim, and your friends have to you have to form a party that would pull from your natural constituency, the kind of pro-business Reagan influenced uh, Republican and still get some of the hyper conservative Trump kind of people, the less crazy ones, and maybe also get Democrats 
who are dissatisfied, particularly if the party tracks too hard in the AOC Bernie direction. You can win some elections that way. You can fish out of three ponds. But that's the only way you can do it. Otherwise, you just take the existing pot you've got, the, the, the existing group of 75 million votes or whatever it is, and you cut it in half or, you know, go two thirds, one third or something. And that's not that's what McConnell would desperately like to avoid. He doesn't want to, you know, he doesn't want to take the National Republican Party and partition it into two things, neither of which will be as big. All right. So what do I do? Okay, I'm I'm getting instructions from the control tower. We're going to go to Evan. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk to Susan. That is the plan. Evan from New Haven. Yep. uh, No, we're not. The plan's out the window. We're going to go to Susan. Uh, (laughs) I hope the control tower wasn't actually landing a plane when they were doing that because it didn't work too well. Uh, All right. Here's Susan from Mystic. Hi, Susan. Hey, Colin. What's on your mind? Um, I'm wondering if you think the Founding Fathers intended for members of Congress to be in office for decades. Well, you know, first of all, people didn't live as long back then. I mean, they really, I'm serious about that, too. People didn't live as long. I don't think they anticipated, you know, these decades and decades and decades of U.S. Senate uh, tendencies. I, I would say, just to kind of scratch at the underlying surface of your question, this is something that over the years I have changed my opinion on. I used to not be in favor of term limits. I am now in favor of term limits. I, yeah, I, I would agree that, you know, if you, I don't know, how many years was Robert Byrd in that West Virginia seat? I mean, I think if you'd said to the framers, this is how long some of these people are going to stay, they would they would have said, oh, no, that's not. But who knows? I, I don't know. I mean, well, they clearly wanted the Senate to be less electorally volatile and labile. In other words, they wanted the Senate to be a place maybe where people stayed 12, 18 years, something like that. And and they wanted the House to be much more reactive to popular will. You know, but I mean, I, I think we're starting to see, I, the, to me, there's no question that 18 years is plenty. Nobody needs to be in the Senate more than 18 years. Nobody needs to be in the House more than 10 years. You know, and and, and I, I think we're, we are, deprive of ourselves of a lot of good ideas and, and young talent by not having some kind of term limits. And uh, anyway, is that what you were basically asking? That is what I'm asking. And I, I don't know how we can get term limits because Congress would have to <laughs> vote for them. It is a problem, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that that day will ever come. But um uh, but it is it is one of the contributors to the situation that we're in right now, I think, you know, and 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 I think also like look at Richard Burr. He's not running again. So he could actually cast a vote in, in that reflected his actual set of feelings about this. One of the things that's pretty clear. I was listening to uh, Stacey Blaskett today talking about this, that as she was ar- arguing the case of the House. Sometimes she would see. You know, people, senators, Republican senators who ultimately did not vote for conviction, they would hang their heads or they would shake their heads or they would be genuinely disturbed by one of the videos that they saw or something. But then ultimately they didn't do anything about it. But if, in fact, you were all done after 18 years or I mean, some people would say 12 years is plenty, you know, um, more people would be free to vote their consciences, not just in impeachments, but in all kinds of situations. So. So, yeah, term limits would be good. Good luck getting them. Uh, All right. So let's take a break and we will be back after this. 
Right, we are back. This is Colin McEnroe. We're taking phone calls today, uh, and the screen is wide open right now, so you can call 888-720-9677, 888-720-9677. Or you may tweet us. You may tweet us at WNPR Colin. Um, and, uh, oh, yeah, no, we would love to get Evan back there. Uh, give us a call, Evan, particularly if you think Trump is being canceled. That's interesting. Um, it would be It would be fun to talk to us. Trump sympathizers. I know Trump sympathizers, public radio, Venn diagram circles don't overlap that well. But, you know, if there are any of them out there, um, yeah, give us a call. So um, uh, once again, the number 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. So I just, just to follow up on what the last caller was talking about, uh, Susan, I mean, the, the problem is, the other problem is, I mean, you could look at it the other way. You could look at it, but you could say, look, because these people never have any fear of losing, <laughs> losing their jobs, um, you know, they should be able to vote their conscience even more. But they don't for the most part. The only people who do that are people who have really safe seats. So, for example, and I mean this in a very positive way, John Larson has taken a bunch of, you know, pretty unpopular positions uh, at a time when a lot of Democrats didn't have the courage in 2003 to vote against uh, going into Iraq, to vote against that resolution. He very publicly opposed it. But nobody's getting John Larson out of that seat until John Larson wants to leave. So, you know, it's sort of like that. But uh, in fact, one of the ironies is for the most, if you look at polling, and I haven't looked at any polling lately. But typically, if you look at polling, the American public does not like Congress. I mean, they, they don't like the, the poll. Congress does not have a high favorability number or anything like that. Um, but they like their congressperson. In fact, uh, members of Congress uh, win reelections at rates of 90 percent or higher, depending on the cycle. I think there have been cycles where 98 percent of the members of the House who were seeking re-election won their elections. Think about that. So that's, and it, it's, and that's the the paradox. People get really mad at Congress, but they like their member of Congress, um, or at least enough of them like their member of Congress. It's very, very tough for incumbents to lose unless they want to go off and do something else with their lives. And most of them don't. And the reason is it's a terrific job. You know, it's really great being a member of Congress. People are extremely nice to you most of the time. Uh, you, you know, you can control an awful lot of your own destiny. And if you're a member of Congress in Washington, D.C., that city is set up to placate you uh, and to, to make nice with you. Uh, a little too much and a little too well at times. All right. Uh, we got a call from Eric on the eastern tip of, of Long Island. Hi, Eric. Uh, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? Okay. How are you, Colin? I'm fine. Um, yeah, it's great. Uh, I've been trying to get through to you for years. This is a, a real treat. But anyway, my question is going to reflect back on the impeachment trial. And I'd like to know people's thoughts about why it was... Uh, why did it proceed as an impeachment trial and really not a criminal trial when 
there could have actually been some consequences. Like, I think the impeachment trial going in, they knew they weren't going to be able to uh, convict. And was it really just a, a show of uh, a show of face, or would it have been better off as an actual criminal uh, prosecution? I, I think I can answer that uh, with the caveat that I'm not a prosecutor or a lawyer or a judge or anything like that. First of all, I doubt, I doubt they would have, I mean, well, let's, let's back up. Okay. So you have an impeachment because it's essentially a political process. It's not a criminal process. I mean, look, as a criminal process, as jurisprudence, impeachment is completely cuckoo. I mean, you have, in this situation, you had the potential victims of the crime were the jurors. And the jurors would do stuff like, you know, I mean, Ted Cruz and some other people went in in the middle of the trial to give some advice to Trump's defense team, which is not typically within the purview of jurors. That's a mistrial in a criminal proceeding. It's like a big mistrial in a criminal proceeding and, and on and on like that. So this isn't a real criminal proceeding. It's not the kind of proceeding that you would initiate to try to obtain a conviction for something like incitement. I actually think they would have trouble getting uh, a criminal conviction uh, for incitement in that situation. I think the point of it was more to create a record. I think you do these things. Well, although I should say the House managers thought they were going to win. I mean, they were going for the win. Uh, I, I think if you, you know, gave Jamie Raskin or any of the other House managers uh, a polygraph, they would say, oh, no, we were going for the win. And we think, you know, we have a chance. We have, think we have a chance to win this, to turn enough uh, senators. I don't, I don't think they thought it was a show trial or anything like that uh, or, or just an exercise in, in rhetoric. But even if you can't get a conviction, creating the record is really important. And I think the other thing that happened this time, this is a very, well, I mean, all, all impeachments are unusual. This is kind of an unprecedented one in terms of the kind of case that was put on. Because all that video, essentially what was happening, and, and I just all want to sort of, sort of pause and give credit to the House managers who understood where they were. They were on television. Yes, you could say they're in the Senate chamber. Yes, you could say they're in Washington, D.C. But where, they, where you really are in a situation like that is you're on television. And when you're on television, you should put on a television show. And that's what they did. And they not only acquainted the senators, some of whom I think, and the senators were, just because of the way things shook out logistically, they were less, less physically menaced and less um, adjacent or proximate to the physical menace uh, of the marauders of January 6th than the House tended to be. They were a little bit more shielded from it. So, you know, for them to watch the videos and maybe understand how close, how close they came, you know, I mean, that video of Romney, of course, is incredible, but, you know, how, how bad this could have been. I think that was an education for them, even if they didn't vote for conviction. It made it hard for them not to vote for conviction. But also, you just create a record. You create a record that everybody has now. Now, now we understand that situation way better than we did. And, and yeah, you know, from a certain point of view, we also, unfortunately, created a precedent to get back from to the first call we took today. It was, I think his name was Tyler. You unfortunately create a precedent where somebody basically incites a thing like that and gets away with it. But, um, but yeah, I think that's why they did it. Uh, they, they, they really did think that they could win a conviction. But even if they can't, you create a public record that won't go away now. Um, we remember impeachments. I remember uh, tons about the Clinton impeachment. I covered that one, too. Uh, although, I should say, we think we remember those things. Michael Schutzen wrote this terrific book called Watergate in American Memory. 
it's basically about how everybody thinks they know what happened in Watergate, but but it actually diverges substantially. You know, we create myths and and we 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 really have this. I mean, historians call it collective memory. What we remember about a thing is not necessarily the historical record. But that's a whole other show. Uh, let's go to Chris. I'm just going to go right down the line here. Uh, uh, let's go to Chris. I have no idea where Chris is right now, but Chris is definitely on the phone. Hi, Chris in Weathersfield. Ah. My question is, why were there not two articles of impeachment? One, you know, for the incitement, and the second for the dereliction of duty to an oath. No bundling of the two. And my second question is, you know, after we have gone through all of this, what basically constitutes dereliction of duty. I want to get a firm definition so that we don't have to go through this again. Well, of course, Jamie Raskin, yeah, Jamie Raskin asked essentially the same question. He, he, said, he said, if this isn't impeachable, I just don't know what is. Uh, I, you know, I think your first question is a good one. I don't know the answer. I'm not even sure I know what they say the answer is. You know, usually when you have, the, have two articles, you, you have a chance to, you know, I mean, for example, I believe Romney voted for only one of the two articles in the last cycle. You know, you have a, you have two chances to win somebody over and, and maybe you can't get them on the whole thing. I'm sure there was a lot of strategic thinking done about why why they have just one article and then fold everything into it. And when you looked at the case that they put on, you know, it was a sprawling case that included all kinds of things that had happened years ago leading up to this. You know, whether that was a smart thing to do. I don't know. But Chris, I, I agree with you. Like, what, <laughs> what what do you have to do to get impeached around here? I mean, what do you have to do to get convicted in an impeachment around here? I have, if, if that didn't cut it, I have no idea. Well, that you know, that's our opportunity to change things. It's a very old constitution. We should be able to update a system with uh, better information so, you know, we can be concrete about it in the future. All right. Yeah. You know, you're preaching to the choir here. I mean, I, I say this a lot. You know, the, the Constitution is a very outdated document. Uh, it was uh, drafted under circumstances we would today not even abide. 55 white men meeting in secret. Uh, you know, no real public record, no representation of anybody else. Uh, there's a lot of things that are kind of wrong with the process. And more than anything else, it was 55 white men living a life that was nothing. It was closer to the life lived by people in the Roman Empire than it is close to the life that we live today. And, and so it's not surprising that a lot of things in the Constitution don't really make any sense these days. And, and we should amend it more, but we can't. One of the problems with the Constitution is that it's hard to amend the Constitution, particularly in modernity. It has been almost impossible to amend the Constitution. And, and it should be amended a lot. It should be changed regularly, not, you know, not on a whim but to reflect really substantial uh, needs. All right, we've got a Trump supporter here uh, in East Granby, Joe, and then we're going to take a break after Joe. Hi, Joe. How you doing there, Colin? Okay. I got, I got two quick questions. I says, what do you think the media has to uh, play with in the last four years of this whole thing? And my second question is to you personally. Can you correct your second caller as to really what happened with that officer and the fire extinguisher? I believe you know what the truth is. I, I don't. Uh, I wasn't even. I thought she said tongue, not fire extinguisher. I, no, I didn't. I didn't. Him. I didn't understand what she was talking about. She said. She said that officer with the fire extinguisher. She clearly said it. Everyone okay. heard it. 
And, and that plays into the problem with the media reporting properly. And you have a responsibility to correct incorrect information. Well, if like I, if I hear or after the break. Yeah, if I hear incorrection, the uh, information that I know to be incorrect, I absolutely do. Do your homework correct. and get back after the break. Thank you. Oh, all right. You're not even going to stay for the conversation. Okay. <laughs> well, that tells you a little something, too. Um, all right. Well, want to take a break? We'll come back after this. They all said just an excitable boy Took in the 4 a.m. show at the Clark Excitable boy, they all said And it fit the assurance Leg in the dark Excitable boy, they all said Well, he's just an All right, so oh, we are back. Um, as far as the fire extinguisher thing goes, as far as I can tell, that's true. So, Joe, I don't know. You'd have to call back here, but um, uh, I'm, first of all, looking at PolitiFact, one of the fact-checking sites that I really trust. They're nonpartisan. They're run by the Pointer Institute. Just as notable, video plainly shows the mob using all manner of makeshift weapons to attack police and force their way in, including hockey sticks, flagpoles, fire extinguishers, and a police shield stolen from an officer. Uh, I'm doing this in real time, so just sort of forgive me. But um, uh, there is some confusion, I think, uh, about who got hit in the head by the fire extinguisher. Uh, and I think it wasn't uh, Brian Sicknick. It may have been um, members of the Metropolitan Police Department. Uh, but I need a little bit more time to check that. So, but, you know, look, I mean, it seems to me, <laughs> you know, to, I mean, I, yes, facts are important, and it, it's important not to say things that aren't true. God knows we've been through four years of thousands of things that were not true spilling out of the mouth of the president of the United States. So if you're a Trump supporter, it's a hell of a, you've picked a hell of a time to get really interested in the truth, but that's okay. I mean, look, you know, if, if there's something wrong, I didn't even hear the woman say it. Says that she did say it quickly in passing. But um, you know, if somebody says something wrong and we can correct it, uh, we will. Um, in the amount of time I had in the break, it didn't look like that. Uh, but uh, I'm even sort of looking right now at a New York Times breakdown that actually shows you uh, by circling the images the circumstances uh, under which uh, members of the Metropolitan Police Department were attacked. So, you know, anyway, we, we can, Joe, we can pin that fire extinguisher thing down. I, I'm not attached to it either being true or false. I think what we do know is that horrible, horrible things happened that day. Five people died, uh, including, of course, one of the marauders died. But uh, horrible, horrible, horrible things happened that day. And one of the things that I think the impeachment trial established is much more horrible things could have happened. Uh, I mean, it's, it is now clear that some of those people were intent on doing extreme physical harm to Nancy Pelosi and, and maybe to Mike Pence as well. We were fortunate that that didn't happen. So um, anyway, I hope that helps. I'd be happy to further check the fire extinguisher thing. Uh, I, I don't think that woman got very specific about who got hit with a fire extinguisher. All right. So uh, here's a Sid in 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 somewhere. Hi, Sid. You're on the air. Hey, thank you, Colin. I'm in uh, Hampton Bays. I'm down in Long Island. All right. So well, these Long Island calls. Yeah. <laughs> uh, going a little bit on what you just started with, do you think it is going to be possible to dispel the lie about the election results? There's a lot of people who believe it, 
and I, I mean, how do you how do you how do you how do you change that perception? Is it possible? Well, in a way, the overarching question is, are we living in a post-truth environment, right? Is, are there sources of verification that people will actually uh, accept? It's interesting because an hour and a half after the show ends, I'm teaching, I'm teaching a seminar this year at Yale that I've taught in the past, and we're going to talk specifically about that. How do you, in other words, what kinds of proof will doubters accept? Uh, and... Uh, you know, I mean, I, I think it, it's an open question right now, and I think you're asking a good question. I, I don't have any magical wisdom about this other than to say that right now we live in a society in which standards of proof exist in kind of separate sectors for each side. Uh, I do think, without trying to pick a partisan fight here, that one of the things that I notice is that, and, and this is actually something that does go back to the Reagan years in some ways, that for the most part, Republicans are inclined to believe with passion and they're inclined to believe things that feel true to them. I'm not saying the Democrats don't do this, but that and that they often will sort of go with their gut about something. Um, they are less impressed by expertise and credentials uh, than Democrats. Uh, and I think that's true whether we're talking about economists discussing a, a stimulus program or uh, a microbiologist talking about a pandemic or, you know, election and officials explaining what happened in the election. They are more likely to doubt the official record. So, so I don't know. I mean, I wish I had a good answer. Do you have a good answer, Sid? I, I don't, but it seems to me that unless everybody is on the same page as to what the facts are, it kind of makes things ungovernable in a way, you know? Uh, there has to be an, an agreed-upon authority of some sort, not just one, but agreed-upon set of facts, or how can you make rules that everybody will abide by? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. Right. I mean, this, this is, I think, more than any particular case, the central truth. I mean, you, know, you could see this erosion beginning for quite a while. Actually, what I used to say to people is, Go look at the polling on 9-11. Now, you know, the polling doesn't show you that there's this huge contingent of people as big as the contingent that we have now that doubts the election results. But it doesn't. It didn't show this huge, huge contingent that had a total truther reaction to the official account of 9-11. But in some polling, as I recall, the people who don't believe all of the official record of 9-11, who feel that some certain aspects of it may have been strategically withheld, that there may be certain things that we don't know that we should know, it was a really high number. You know, and that's after having, I mean, now Nancy Pelosi is calling for a 9-11 style commission about the January 6th. And I'm thinking, well, good luck with that, because, I mean, I don't see how that's going to produce a record that people will necessarily embrace. So I, I don't, you know, I don't know how you do this other than, you know, it, it may be a matter of personal trust. You know, there, there are people who are trusted by the groups that we're talking about. And if some of them will come forward, as some of them did to ultimately say, you know, yes, I believe this election is over, blah, blah, blah. The problem is, you know, those people pay a price from the people who, who never want them to say that. Uh, and look, look what's happening now. I mean, you know, already uh, uh, Cassidy uh, and Burr have been censured by their own state parties, you know, for just voting, just for casting a vote. So, which is not what you're talking about. You're talking about it's kind of empiricism. You're talking about uh, just being able to establish empirical truths. 
And I, I don't think we have a consensus society right now. We have in, instead this, you know, heavily, heavily bifurcated society that really, you know, back to the Daniel Patrick Moynihan's famous line, you're entitled to your own opinions, but you're not entitled to your own facts. Well, these days, people do feel entitled to their own facts. Don't know what we do about it. All uh, right. Uh, we're going to talk to Ruth and Sandy Hook. Uh, and if she's still there. Hi, Ruth. Uh, are you still there? Hi, Colin. Yes, I am. Thank you for taking my call. And I appreciate this program. I know we all have so much as to, to say. While I was listening, I wrote down 10 things. I, I will not you know, <laughs> go on with all of that. But what I had initially called to say is we have to remember that Mitch McConnell didn't want to accept the Democrats uh, bringing over the uh, the you know, impeachment, uh, while he was still in office, he made sure that he was out of office so that then he could say, wow, you know, I really think everything that the managers talked about and proved is correct, and he's guilty, guilty, you know, but I can't do anything about it because he's not in office. So that, that, you know, I think that we have to keep reminding ourselves that that was his doing. And then it's so interesting you know, what we thought Clinton lied, we had to impeach him and what this guy has done. I mean, there's just, he call, he wanted my, Mike Pence to be hung. He, you know, never mind Nancy or, or any of the other people that he hated, but his own VP because he wouldn't change the votes. I mean, there's just, you, your head blows off. But I also, one more thing, and and then I will uh, hang up and let somebody else talk. And that's that fairness doctor, doctrine that once existed. Of course, we didn't have all of the other kinds of places where people got information. But you couldn't get on the radio or television and just plain lie. And now you can. I guess one more thing. That for all these hundreds of years, we accepted the the you know the counting of the vote the electoral counting and we said that person is president and you know if you lost you lost and then you made a nice speech very gracious and you tried to work together as best you can so it, it is really it is really discouraging it, it breaks my heart I mean when I listen to some of the news and the tears are pouring out it's because I don't know just like you ask the question how we get America back when you have so many people filled, I guess I have to say this, with so much hate and racism. I mean, you're, you're, you're taunting. I, I happen to be of the Jewish faith, and when you hear, you know, uh, the things that the Proud Boys and all the other people say, you know, they, they want the Jews dead, they, they want black and brown people dead, they don't like uh, Asian people, you know, so I don't know how we make the America right. Whoop, 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 I don't know what happened to Ruth. Uh, she's been silenced, she's been silenced unfairly, I don't know what just happened there, but... Um... All right. Well, well, it doesn't matter because we're almost out of time anyway. Um, I, I do want to say, actually, there were so many things that she talked about that I, that I wanted to react to that I've kind of lost track of the thing that I wanted to react to the most. But somehow or other, we have to move past this point. And maybe ultimately the key to it is the formation of a third party. Uh, maybe ultimately the formation of a party of responsible Republicans who are recognizable as the kinds of, oh, I know what was what I was going to talk about was the Fairness Doctrine. That's what it was. Okay, so the Fairness Doctrine, yes, which is not around anymore. And I think uh, On the Media did a nice segment about it, I think two weeks ago on On the Media. 
But people still lied. Uh, I mean, the Fairness Doctrine did not keep people from lying. And one of the places that people have lied and will continue to be allowed to lie in um, are campaign commercials. Political commercials, there is absolutely no standard and never has been uh, about the content other than we, we eventually added that sort of I Mitt Romney and I approve of this ad, but um, just so we could know where the ad came from anyway. But um, uh, okay, okay, Joe's, Joe wants to fact check Ruth too. Um, the, um, but in the, the fairness doctrine didn't do anything about lying. It just created a, a requirement of opposing viewpoints. Uh, people have always lied and will continue to lie. Now Joe is upset because uh, the woman said that Trump wanted Pence hung or hanged. Does he, is, he, she, is Joe worried about the grammar? Because it should be hanged. Um, but um, no, he's not. <laughs> well, I mean, that's her opinion. She is allowed to have that opinion. That I mean, I, I do think one thing that you can say, one thing that uh, just th that was obvious prior to the impeachment trial and even more clear during the impeachment trial is that Trump's behavior uh, after he became aware of the invasion of the Capitol proved that he didn't really care about stopping it at all. Uh, and wanted, I don't think he wanted Mike Pence hanged, but I, Ruth, is, Ruth is entitled to that opinion. All right, we absolutely have to go right now, so we're going. But thank you. Thanks for calling in. Especially you, Joe. 